Thank you very much. Can you hear me at the back? Can you hear me at the back now? Yes? Okay, I'll assume that you can. What the introductions don't usually mention, and I actually used to be a high school teacher. I taught high school for three years in North Vancouver and decided that was way too stressful, so I went to medical school instead. <laughs> I went to work in the downtown east side of Vancouver. I thought that would be a relief. So I know about many of you are up against. It was uh, in 1994, well, let me backtrack a bit. Today you're getting many speakers, maybe more speakers than, than I would think is helpful. That's up, to you. That's up to you to decide. It's just that I think it takes the brain a while to acquire new information and to incorporate it. And to tell you the truth, uh, with all respect to the wonderful organizers of this event, I'd much rather be talking for an hour and a half than for 45 minutes. Not, not out of the pleasure of hearing myself speak, although that is considerable, but, uh, <laughs> but, but because I, I just want the space to communicate. And one of the things that is less than less available in our society is space to communicate. Uh, and that's also happening to us as a culture. It's just impossible for a culture to adjust to the rapidity of change that's going on technologically. So that we're not, we don't have time to absorb, integrate, and process what's going on. And that's part of the problem that we're facing as healthcare givers, as educators, as health workers, as parents, and certainly as children growing up in this society. Well, my subject is the emotional basis of cognition. It was in 1994 that Antonio, Antonio Damasio a neuroscientist published his book, Descartes' Error. And here's what he says. And he's talking about learning. And he's, he's saying that he used to assume that learning, cognition, intellectualization, was a separate um, entity and a separate process from emotionality. And, you know, in um, Latin, homo sapiens... The, the name of our species, the man who knows. So we're kind of assuming an intellectual definition of humanness when we say human, homo sapiens. But, but what uh, Damasio said in his seminal work is in 20 years ago now almost is that cognition is actually something that rests on an edifice of emotion. So that the basis of learning and cognition is actually our emotional uh, being. And that emotional being is very much connected to our visceral states, the states in our, of our liver, of our stomach, of our heart, of our lungs, of our internal organs. And that the mind itself and the brain, the brain itself is, is an organizational um, entity that brings together information that's coming at it from the outside and from the inside at the same time. And in fact, the brain receives many more messages from the inside of the body than sometimes it does from the outside. And the messages that it receives from the inside has a lot to do with how well we can uh, engage the external world. So that means our capacity to pay attention and to learn have a lot to do with what's happening internally on the visceral and emotional level and what our gut feelings are telling us. And so in a society where people are less and less connected to their gut feelings, uh, there's less and less engagement with the realities of the external world. 
even though we are externally focused, we are externally focused in a less efficient manner because of that disconnect. And let me ask you this question and ask for a show of hands. How many of you have had the experience of having a strong gut feeling about something, ignoring it, and being sorry afterwards? Put your hand up if you've had that experience. Okay. Now, you see that just about everyone raise their hands. Now, how many of you have had the experience, the adverse experience, of having a powerful gut feeling, ignoring it, and being glad afterwards? Now, we have one or two hands in an audience of many hundreds. In other words, there's something about gut-level cognition that is absolutely valid and we ignore it at our peril. But that's a function of living in a society that's, that, that actually cuts us off from our gut feelings. So that there's something internal that knows that is much stronger than what intellect is telling us. And any contest between the internal knowledge and the intellectual knowledge, 99% of the time, that internal knowing will be accurate and the intellectual rationalization will be inaccurate. So Damasio says, the lower levels in the neural edifice of reason are the same ones that regulate the processing of emotion and feelings along with the body functions necessary for the organism's survival. So this is calling us to have a view of knowledge and learning and cognition that takes into account emotionality and our internal body states. In turn, these lower levels maintain direct and mutual relationships with virtually every bodily organ, thus placing the body directly within the chain of operations that generate the highest reaches of reasoning, decision-making, and by extension, social behavior and creativity. Now, what is the situation in North America? The situation is that we have millions of children being diagnosed with this, that, and the other. And my profession is really good at creating new diagnoses. So every time the DSM comes out, there's a whole bunch of new diagnoses in it with which you can label people now. So um, I'll give you one example. A common one is ADHD these days, Attention Deficit Hyperactive Disorder. In the United States, uh, according to the latest figures, there's at least 3 million kids who are receiving uh, stimulant medications for ADHD. In Canada, the number of prescriptions for stimulant medications has gone up 43% in the last five years. Let alone the hundreds of thousands of kids who are receiving antipsychotic medications. Not to control psychosis, which they don't have, but to control what? To control their behaviors. And we don't even know what the long-term effects are of antipsychotics on the, on the developing human brain. The early indications are nothing positive. So what we've got here is a massive social experiment in the chemical control of children's brains because we don't know what else to do. And so when children don't learn the way they do, or sorry, the way we expect them to, and they don't behave the way we expect them to, we have two dominant responses. The one response is to medicalize it. Let's call it a medical name and let's medicate it. And by the way, as a physician, I'm not against medications. I've taken them, I've prescribed them. This is not a rant against medications. But I'm talking about the limitations of the medical approach and I'm talking about the overwhelming domination of pharmacological approaches to childhood issues. 
So there's that response, the medical approach, and then there is the behavioral approach. And the behavioral approach says, what's wrong with here is what's wrong here is the behavior itself. So let's fix and control the behavior. And that dominates psychology these days, behavioral approaches. So the problem is the behavior. So when a child is acting out, let's control the behavior. And parenting books will tell you, when a kid is doing this, the parent should do that. The child acts out, and the parents then should have some way of managing that acting out. But here's the thing about acting out. Look at the phrase itself. It's a good English phrase. It is a very specific meaning. We act out, and it doesn't mean that we're behaving badly. We act out when we don't have the language to say something in words. That's what acting out actually means. So in a game of charades, where you're not allowed to speak, you have to act out to deliver your message. If you landed in a country where nobody spoke your language, and you had to portray hunger, you'd have to act out. Kids are acting out all the time. And our response is to control the behavior. We respond to the form of the message rather than to the content of it. And then we wonder why it doesn't work. Now, in a Toronto uh, school, uh, three years ago, I think it was two years ago, there was an eight, nine-year-old boy who ended up in handcuffs because the cops were called. And what happened was that this kid had, uh, I think, Asperger's, one of these diagnoses, which is, um, uh, involves poor social processing and poor impulse control, amongst other features. And this kid had been bullied, and he was very upset. He was screaming. I don't know what he was doing. The teachers, in their wisdom, decided that what he needed was to be isolated. And how often we do that to kids, we isolate them. Well, he was put in a room by himself, at which point he really freaked out. And neurophysiologically, he needed something very, very different. And I'll come to that later. But what they did is isolated him, at which point he started throwing things and I think destroying the furniture, and that's where they called the police. And the police handcuffed this nine-year-old. And the debate afterwards was, oh, was the police right to handcuff the kid? But that wasn't the right question. When you call the police, they're going to do what the police do, which is to restrain. That's what they're trained to do. The real question was, how come that well-meaning and I assume well-educated teachers in a major school system had no understanding that what that child needed at that moment was emotional closeness with a nurturing adult to regulate his neurophysiology. That's what needed at that moment. And these incidents are not totally isolated. I mean, handcuffing is isolated, but you know, it was in British Columbia here eight or nine years ago, there was a case of a hyperactive kid in an elementary school, the teacher dealt with it by taping his head to the bench, to, the, to his desk. This is how she learned to control his hyperactivity. Now, there's another way to understand all this, which is that these behaviors rest on an emotional edifice and when the behaviors are not such as meet uh, our standards or expectations and don't serve the child, we actually have to ask ourselves, what is happening for that child emotionally at that moment? 
Now, and, some, and, and let's face it, there's many, many more kids who are having behavior problems, impulse regulation problems, body regulation problems, emotional outbursts, difficulties learning. This is burgeoning in our society. But the question is why? Is it because some genetic disease is somehow mysteriously spreading in the population? Or something is happening in children's lives that is undermining their capacity to socially interact well, to pay heed, to pay attention, to be emotionally regulated, to have impulse regulation, to be able to regulate their stresses. Now the prefrontal cortex, you've been hearing about the brain today, I'm sure, and the prefrontal cortex has nine very um, important functions. It regulates the body itself, the prefrontal cortex being the mammalian cortex, the one that's latest to develop uh, evolutionary speaking. And it really is what distinguishes us from other animals. It regulates the body. It regulates attuned communication with others. It is responsible for emotional balance. It all allows us response flexibility. So response flexibility means that if you say something to me that might upset me, then instead of reacting by screaming back at you, I can actually say, oh, okay, what's happening for you that you said that to me, and do I really have to take it personally? And then I can respond rather than react. Providing insight, providing empathy, the modulation of fear, so that when something happens, then the fear circuits in the brain start taking over, something in the prefrontal cortex will override that fear circuit, saying, okay, calm down. You can actually handle this. Intuition and morality. Now, Dr. Rick Hansen will follow my talk, which I think is perfect, and he'll be able to tell you that all nine of these modalities, these nine functions of the prefrontal cortex, are actually supported by mindful awareness practice. And seven of them, at least, and here's the key, are supported and developed by nurturing parenting. And I think all nine of them are. Because what we're actually coming down to in our society, and the reason that so many children are having so many problems is for no other cause but that the parenting environment has become so stressed so that parents are no longer able to provide their children with the environment that these functions and the prefrontal circuits that serve these functions can develop properly. That's why the epidemic. It's not bad parenting. It's not um, the drinking water. It's not some genetic disease that's spreading. What's going on is that the conditions for healthy brain development of the prefrontal cortex are less, less and less available for children. Let me turn now to an article that appeared in the journal Pediatrics, which is the official journal of the American Pediatric Association. And this article appeared in February 2012. And it summed up very nicely the accumulated knowledge of the past several decades. And the article is from the Harvard Center on the Developing Child. And they say, growing scientific evidence demonstrates that social and physical environments that threaten human development because of scarcity, stress, and I stress the word stress here, or instability can lead to short-term physiologic 
and psychological adjustments that are necessary for immediate survival and adaptation, but which may come at a significant cost to long-term outcomes in learning, behavior, health, and longevity. In other words, the things that young human beings have to um, develop as adaptive mechanisms to survive early stress will help them endure that early stress, but in the long term will interfere with health and learning, adaptation, social relationships, and even longevity. Now, I was very glad to see that article appear because uh, when I was diagnosed myself with ADHD back in my, in, in, in my mid-1950s, sorry, not mid-1950s, in my mid-50s, I'm not that old. <laughs> I never bought into the idea that we're dealing with a genetic disease here. That made no sense to me. And here's why it made no sense to me. First of all, if anything is spreading in a population that quickly, it can't be genetic. Because genes don't change in a population over 10 years, over 20 years, not even 100 years. So whatever it is, it's not genetic. Secondly, I knew something by then. And what I knew, that tuning out, which is the hallmark... You remember the, the prefrontal cortex function? One of them is regulation of the body. Well, I didn't know that. But here's what I did know. I knew that tuning out is not a disease. On the contrary, what actually is tuning out? Why did nature give us the capacity to tune out, to dissociate? Why do you think that is? It's a survival mechanism. It's a survival mechanism. If, if I were to stress you right now <clears throat> by threatening you <clears throat> or just uh, insulting you, insulting your dignity as a human being, you'd have three healthy options. One would be to walk out. Escape. Flight. The other would be to fight. To challenge me. Stand up for yourself. And if for whatever reason you are in, unable to engage in either of those modalities, you have a third one. There are hundreds of people here in the room with you. You could seek help. You could say, please help me. This guy's bugging me. But if none of those were available to you and the stress was Im immense and intense, what your mind would do, what your brain would do, was escape from that. And one of the ways of escaping would be to just dissociate, to tune out. So tuning out is not a disease. It's a, it's a nature-given uh, capacity that we have to escape overwhelming stress. That's what I knew. What I didn't know and found out really almost by accident was that the human brain itself the very circuits in the prefrontal cortex that I mentioned, those, those functions, that develops under the impact of the environment. So that which circuits develop, which prefrontal circuits develop, and how the emotional circuits develop depends very much on the early environment. And the example is that of vision. If you don't see light for five years after birth, it doesn't matter how good your eyes are, how good your genes are, you'll be blind for the rest of your life because it takes light waves to promote the development of the visual circuits. It's that simple. With the emotional self-regulation circuits that are not functioning very well on a lot of kids these days, with the attentional circuits 
that are not functioning very well, with the impulse regulation circuits, with the stress regulation circuits, it's the same thing. Just like light is needed for vision, the right environment is needed for those circuits to develop. I'm talking about the physiological development. I'm talking about the neurochemistry of the brain. I'm talking about oxytocin, serotonin, dopamine, endorphins, gabapentin. Not gabapentin, but yeah. Um, all the important uh, neurochemicals that, that uh, modulate our behaviors. The quantities of them, their interaction, the circuits that modulate them. They depend on the environment for their development. And the human brain is particularly vulnerable because unlike other animals, most of our brain development occurs after birth. Not before, but also before. So we also know, we also know that already what happens in pregnancy has significant impact on the developing brain of the child. So the more stressed women are, the more likely the kids are going to be affected. So if you're looking at the preponderance of autism and, and all kinds of other childhood conditions, what are we looking at? We're looking at the impact of stress on the parenting environment, including on pregnant women. A study after 9-11 looked at the uh, stress hormone levels of one-year-old infants whose, parent, whose mothers had suffered post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of 9-11 during pregnancy. And these children at one year of age had abnormal stress hormone levels which means that their stress regulation circuitry had been negatively affected by their mother's stress during pregnancy, which means they're more prone for addictions and behavior problems, by the way, and learning difficulties. Because too much cortisol, the stress hormone, interferes with learning and actually shrinks the hippocampus, which is the part of the brain responsible for retaining memory. And one could speak to you for at least an hour and really a, a day, just on the effects of prenatal stress. Then there was a study out of um, UBC here, either last year or the year before. I think it's last year, 2012. They looked at the genetic functioning. We have this whole idea that genes regulate things and that genetics control things. They do not. Genes are turned on and off by the environment. That study is called epigenetics. Epigenetics is how genes are regulated by the environment. So that in both in human studies and animal studies, we know that even if people have certain genes that might predispose them to addictions, if they're brought up in nurturing environments, those genes are turned off. So this UBC study looked at 150 genes in teenagers, the expression, which is the activity of the genes. 120 of them had been affected by stress on the mother in the first few years of life. 30 had been affected by stress on the father in the preschool years. So that the stresses on the parents translate into the genetic expression of the teenagers a decade later. So that the environment actually modulates the activity of genes. And to return to this Harvard article then, um, I, I can't give you all the information on brain development and... Uh, and uh, the environment, but they summarize it very nicely in this article. And they write, the architecture of the brain is constructed through an ongoing process that begins before birth, continues into adulthood, and establishes either a sturdy or a fragile foundation for all the health, all the health, learning and behavior that follow. And then they say, 
the interaction of genes and experiences literally shapes the circuitry of the developing brain and is critically influenced by the mutual responsiveness of adult-child relationships, particularly in early childhood years. So the key issue is the mutual responsiveness of adult-child relationships. So that is a spectrum. On the one hand, you can have the calm, non-depressed, emotionally present, attuned parent. And on the other, you can have the parent who abuses the child, traumatizes the child. Now, in the downtown east side of Vancouver, over a 12-year period, I did not have a single female patient who had not been sexually abused as a child. So the people that our government is jailing in large numbers are people that have been traumatized as children. That's just the society that we live in. In between that calm, attuned, non-stress pending environment, which incidentally is what people offer themselves when they practice mindful awareness modalities, as Dr. Hansen will tell you. They're giving themselves that attuned, quiet attention. That's why it works. In between that and the extreme of parents who actually act their own trauma out on their children by traumatizing them, there's a whole range. And in our society, that range is increasingly moving towards stress. Because parents no longer have the support they used to have, they no longer have the extended family, clan, tribe, village. There was an article out of Notre Dame University a couple of years ago. They looked at the optimal parenting environment, and it was the hunter-gatherer tribe. Because in the hunter-gatherer tribe, parents were present physically. Multiple adults of multiple generations were connecting emotionally with kids. The parents were always with the kids, and so on and so forth. Now, most parents, this, not, this has nothing to do with bad parenting. It has to do with stress parenting. The studies, again, are very clear. When parents are stressed, they're less able to attune to their kids. The less able to attune to their kids, the more likely their children's brain will not develop optimally. And that's what the educators you're up against these days. Now, when we look at Furthermore, what the impact, impact of early stress is on the child's brain and the child's capacity to learn, what are we up against? What are we up against? Those coping mechanisms that the child adapted. So one coping mechanism was the dissociation, the tuning out. The problem is that when a child has to adapt these modalities chronically early in childhood, that gets programmed into the brain. And then 10 years later, when Mike is 55 years later, that person is diagnosed with ADHD. Because there are times in the first year of life when every second, so consider this space of time, millions of circuits are being laid down, millions of connections are being made. It's that rapid, it's that um, intense, the brain growth. So if, if stress happens in a parent's life during that period, if the mother is depressed, for example, or the father overworked, or is unresolved family issues, that will have an impact on the child. We're not talking about learned behaviors here. We're talking about emotional-based coping mechanisms. Now, that's one way to, uh, the brain protects itself from stress. Another way that the brain protects itself from stress is a kind of emotional shutdown, of not being aware of feelings, 
Incidentally, when you all put your hand up and said that you'd had the experience of having strong gut feelings and ignoring it, you were telling the story of your childhood. Do you know that? And the story of your childhood was is that your authentic emotions were not responded to by your parents. Not because they didn't love you, but because they themselves were too stressed. And that means you disconnected because it was too painful to have feelings that were not validated by the world. So then you learned to dissociate your gut feelings from your intellect. And then you became stupid. In a sense of the inner knowing no longer being available to you. Now, at the extreme case of that, you have people who totally shut down emotionally. The problem with shutting down emotionally is you stop learning. Emotional learning stops when you shut down. So you shut down to protect yourself, but for development, you need vulnerability. Vulnerability from the Latin word vulnerare, vulnerare to wound. So vulnerability is a capacity to be wounded. And nothing grows when it's not vulnerable. A tree doesn't grow where it's hard and thick. It grows where it's soft and green and vulnerable. A crustacean animal like a crab cannot grow encased in a hard shell. To grow, it has to mold, make itself soft and vulnerable. Same with children. When children shut down emotionally, they have difficulty learning, especially from negative experience. So they keep repeating the same stuff over and over again, and despite the negative consequences, they learn nothing from it. And then the adult gets exasperated. I've told him a thousand times not to do it, and he's still doing it. Well, the proper response is, if you've told him a thousand times, and he's, st and he's still doing it, who's got the learning problem here? <laughs> Clearly what... Clearly what we have to do, clearly what we have to do is we have to find out what's going on for that child. The third way of, emo of, of emotional self-protection is detachment from relationship, and particularly from relationships that threaten you. So a lot of kids detach from adult relationships, and by default, as we point out, Gordon Ufold and I in our book, Hold On To Your Kids, they connect to other kids. And, and when that happens, learning also stops. Because for learning, what you need? You need curiosity. But curiosity is vulnerable. When you are curious, you care about something. When you're emotionally shut down, you don't care about anything. It's boring. It doesn't matter. Number one. You also learn from trial and error. But for trial and error, you have to have the vulnerability to admit that something doesn't work and to be sad about it. When you're defended against sadness, when nothing matters, you're not going to learn from negative experiences. You're not going to try something again. Instead, you're going to say, I don't care. And you just give up. That I don't care of the frustrated child. People learn through attachment. In other words, when you are emotionally attached to somebody, you want to emulate them. You want to be like them. You want to learn from them. Well, that's fine in societies when children still attach to adults. But what happens in a society when children emotionally are connected to each other so much that they can't bear to be without each other for one moment, and every second that they're not in physically in each other's presence, they have to be testing one another. That's not a technological problem. It's an attachment problem. It also means that they're not learning from, uh, from the adults who can actually tell them what life is about. 
They're learning from immature creatures. So these are the consequences of those early adaptive uh, mechanisms on learning. So, I'll need to be summing this up very, very soon. What is required then for the learning capacity of the young human being to really express itself? Well, again, a bit of neurophysiology, if you will. The human being has three fundamental ways to respond to the environment. And, and these follow an evolutionary ladder, if you will. Our fundamental mode, or at least I should say our more, most primitive mode, is the reptilian one. And the reptilian brain is our brain stem, low done in the brain. And we share that with reptiles. Now, reptiles being creatures who are cold-blooded, who um, cannot expend a lot of energy, who have to conserve energy, their method of dealing with environmental challenge is to freeze, sink under the water so they don't have to use up too much oxygen, conserve energy. And that's the function of certain brain circuits, which, when activated, will put us into a freeze mode. That's fine for the reptile. It can be deadly for the human being. And it certainly interferes with learning. The second mode is the mammalian flight-or-fight response, which happens higher up in the brain. And it activates the sympathetic nervous system, allowing the so-called flight-or-fight response, which involves adrenaline and cortisol, the stress hormones, which uh, give us more sugar so we have more energy, which in increase our heart rate so we have more blood pumping to our brain and our muscles and so on. That's all fine. But the problem is that these are both defensive modes. And the human organism can be in defensive mode or growth mode, learning mode, but not both at the same time. So that the mode in which we're in a learning phase, when I'm paying attention to another person, when I'm listening to the message that they're delivering, when my middle ear muscles are activated in such a way as to take in verbal information, when my head turns towards you so I can observe your face and respond to your facial expressions, when I'm taking in and responding to the prosody, the modulation of your voice, that's yet another brain circuit. That's yet another brain circuit. And it activates a totally different set of nerves in a different part of the nervous system. And that's called the social engagement mode. And, that, and the nerves that regulate our social engagement behavior are very much connected to the nerves that carry information from our viscera, from our internal organs, and the nerves that at the same time regulate our breathing, our breath, whether it's shallow or deep, whether our airways are narrow or broad, and our heart rate. So again, to go back to what Damasio said about that unity between the internal environment and our capacity to learn, modulated through the emotional apparatus. And that's called the social engagement mode. But to be in a social engagement mode, we have to, we have to feel safe. We have to feel emotionally safe. Now let me tell you, 
as, as a physician interested in ADHD, and that was the subject of my first book, how many adults in their 40s and 50s I saw in my office who spoke with choked tones and sometimes tears in their eyes about something that a teacher had said to them decades ago that was humiliating. And the teacher meant nothing harmful by it. They might even be trying to humorously support the kid. But as recent research shows, there seem to be receptors in our temporal lobe that gauge our degree of safety, emotional safety. And when we don't feel safe, then either the fees or the flight or fight mechanisms are engaged. And when a child is in that fight or flight mechanism, they can't learn. When we yell at a kid, when we exclude a child, when we uh, isolate them, when we look at them in a harsh way, when we use a tone of voice that expresses our irritation, our irritation and incomprehension, when we don't understand the child's emotional state so the child feels a lack of attunement with us, we're actually triggering their defensive states. Now, one of the things that mindfulness practice will do, such as we teach kids, is to actually help them regulate their internal states. But surely, as long as they're immature, and given that they're so connected to adults, and children are necessarily uh, dependent on the environment because they're, de they're not independent, they're not mature, as long as that's the case, and incidentally, this is the truth for a lifetime, that their emotional states, their visceral states, the, the heart and lungs, the receptivity of their nerves, their sense of safety, depends purely on the environment and largely on the environment. So it's up to us then to provide that emotional safety for them. And that's much more important than the um, academic learning we're trying to convey. Not that that isn't important, but without that emotional basis to it, it just will not penetrate. So Dr. Stephen Porges, who's done a lot of the work on the neurophysiology that I've conveyed to you some of, he says in an interview, when fear is removed, it's empowering. If your nervous system is safe, you can do lots of interesting things. When your nervous system detects risk and fear, you can't even sit in your room without being hypervigilant. And that depends very much on our internal perception of safety, now the problem is, and this is my final comment, the problem is, is that when children grow up in stressed environments, as increasingly they do, they don't even perceive safety when it's there. They, they, they mistake safety for lack of safety, and unfortunately sometimes they mistake lack of safety for safety. And these are the kids who get into trouble. And so that our job as educators, as healthcare givers, as psychologists, as parents, as anybody that has anything to do whatsoever with children, is primarily and first of all to forget about the, uh, not to forget about them, but, but, but to prioritize. And the first priority has to be the absolute emotional security of our children. Thank you.